Alrighty. We're in chapter four. We're going to just cover the first 11 verses today. And we'll finish the chapter next week. I'll just pray to get started. Father, I just thank you for this awesome book, Lord. We're really looking forward to Ruth marrying Boaz, which is a picture of us marrying you. And we look forward to our wedding with Jesus. And Lord, we just yeah praise you that you have sacrificed your very life to redeem us at great cost, Lord. But it's given to us freely. So help us to appreciate what you've done. And also to realize that when we're not saved, we're in bondage to the law. The closer Goel, the closer Redeemer. And Father, to really understand the predicament that we're in when we're not saved and what it took for you to save us and what it means for us to be saved, the future that we have in you. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we finished with chapter 3, verse 18. And Naomi says, Sit still, my daughter. The man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So, Boaz is going to settle this matter that very day. He's not going to rest until it's all done. So remember Ruth got up early, took off before anyone could see her, and then Boaz went to the city gate. Now he's at the city gate. So we're going to find out what happens. This whole thing today is about Boaz redeeming Ruth, and it's a picture of Christ redeeming the church. And I also said that this week we'll find out who the nearer Goel is, who the nearer kinsman redeemer is. And I'm not going to tell you yet. You have to try and guess it as we read through. And at the end of today, just to let you know what's happening, we're going to have an overview of what happens to someone who is condemned by the law versus what happens to someone who has been redeemed by Jesus as an act of grace and love. What does our future hold? There's more than, oh, I just go to heaven and go to hell. There's actually a future, and I want to point that out to you. And as a love story, the previous chapter left us at a dramatic point. Ruth and Boaz were obviously in love and wanted to get married, with Boaz exercising the right of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. Yet, there's a kinsman closer to Ruth, and he had priority. Would he claim the right of kinsman redeemer toward Ruth? and keep her and Boaz from coming together. So we'll find out what happens. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses. So Ruth chapter 4, 1 to 11. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal, and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, all that was Kilion's and Marlon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Marlon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. So, last week, we talked about the fact that Boaz was really excited that Ruth would choose him to be her husband, to be her redeemer, to find security in him. Ruth loved Boaz and Boaz loved Ruth. Therefore, Boaz was eager to complete this process of redemption. Now, we also learn that in the same way, Jesus is overjoyed when we choose him. Yes, we are drawn by the Spirit, but in the end, we must exercise our free will to choose to accept our hopeless situation, accept the fact that we can't save ourselves. Then we must willingly submit ourselves to him and ask Jesus to redeem us or save us from our sins. And that's basically the situation that Ruth found herself in. That's our situation too. Ruth, the picture of the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. That's our situation as well. So verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. So this is that day. It says he went up to the gate and sat down there. So Boaz goes to the city gate, and this is where business transactions take place. So in those days, the gate city gate also functioned as a courtroom and a city council as well as a place where people would come together and conduct business, you know, buy and sell stuff. It was a place where the prominent or important men would gather and make decisions. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. This was the nearer kinsman the nearer Goel, of whom Boaz spoke in chapter 3, verse 12. And remember, he said to Ruth, there's someone closer than me, someone who has first dibs. Now, what does this mean? Come aside, friend, sit down here. Well, literally in the Hebrew, when Boaz greeted the nearer kinsman, he called him Mr. So-and-so. It's not a very nice term. And the writer of Ruth never identified the name of this nearer kinsman because he was not worthy of the honor. He declined to fulfill his obligations as the nearer kinsman to Ruth. Now also remember, because Ruth had been obedient to Naomi and then to Boaz, she had gone home quietly, and the people at the threshing floor were told to be quiet as well. And so Boaz's approach to this nearer kinsman was a complete surprise to the other man. So put yourself in the other man's shoes. You get a message, hey, come meet Boaz at the city gate. Oh, okay, I wonder what he wants. And so he's coming along, and this is going to be a tactical advantage to Boaz from a human perspective. All right, verse 2. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. 
So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to her brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it. And I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Oh, now it's getting a bit tricky. So first off, the ten elders of the city. I take this as an illustration of who our nearer kinsman is. Any ideas? It's not Satan. Good guess, but it's not Satan. It's the law. Yeah, the law is our nearest kinsman. Yeah. Ten Commandments. The law came first. Before Jesus came to earth to redeem us, the law was already in place. And now with its do's and don'ts, the law is an unmerciful nearer kinsman which has claim over us. It laid claim to you and me. And we'll look into this more later. So continuing with the story, in verse 3, Naomi sold the piece of land. So the duty of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, it's not just to preserve the family name, but it's also to keep the land allotted to members of the family. So when Israel came into the promised land during the days of Joshua, the land was divided among the tribes and then among family groups. And God intended that the land stay within the tribes and family groups so the land could never be permanently sold. And every 50 years, it had to be returned to the original family group. And that way, each tribe would maintain its own property. And that's in Leviticus 25, 8-17. But 50 years is a long time. And if you go through bad business or whatever, had to sell your land, or just hard times, you had to sell your land, you might want to get it back. So there's this process, this kinsman redeemer process to buy back the family property so you could then live there again. Also, the kinsman redeemer had the responsibility to redeem the persons out of slavery. Now, this is not the role that Boaz is playing here, but this is another biblical role of the kinsman redeemer, and it also applies to us as Christians. We were sold into the slave market of sin, and Jesus bought us out. So, if Ruth was a slave, which he's not, but if she was a slave, then Boaz had the right and the responsibility to buy her out of slavery and free her. And then the other responsibility is to maintain the family, the posterity, by marrying the surviving widow and raising children in the deceased husband's name. And so basically he would marry the widow, they would have a child, and then that child wouldn't be called by his name, it would be called by the deceased person's name. And so that family name will continue on but it's costly because you've got to share your inheritance with the other family and so that other family has to have their share of the inheritance so it's a very unselfish act and you think of Jesus what is he doing he owned everything but what does he do he shares it with us we are joint heirs with Christ so Jesus doesn't own everything anymore because we're his brethren, we own it with him. So when I say Jesus doesn't own it anymore, he does, but not exclusively. He's sharing it with us. He's chosen to share it with us. The whole universe, everything. So the piece of land 
When Boaz brought up the matter to the near kinsman, he brought it up as a matter regarding property, something that any man would be interested in. Oh, I want more property, another investment property, some more fields, I can grow some more grain, I can get some more money. This is great. It's back in the family and I get to use it. This is awesome. I'll do it. And as part of a purely land transaction where there's no cost to the kinsman redeemer except to put some money out there and, and get this land, but of course he can get the money back from the crops and stuff like that. And he goes, yeah, I'll redeem it. Now, imagine being Ruth and Naomi watching and listening at this stage. And the nearer kinsman says, I will redeem it. Oh no. Oh no. Ruth's thinking, I love Boaz, but I can't marry him. This is terrible. (laughs) But Boaz knew exactly what he was doing, and he had the situation all under control. And I think of this as like Jesus. It looked like everything was gone to pot. Everything was out of control. Everything was finished and destroyed. All God's plans were wiped out with Jesus lying in the grave. But then he rose again. Oh, he did have a plan. It's all working out good after all. So Ruth and Naomi are kind of like in the position of the disciples here. And then Boaz continues, verse 5. On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. So this is Deuteronomy 25, the Goel, the nearer kinsman. Not only had the right to redeem the property, but an obligation to take care of the family. If the nearer kinsman refused to meet his responsibility to the family, in this case, he's refusing to marry Ruth, the law said he was to be spat upon, and then his shoe was to be removed from his foot, signifying that he was walking away from his responsibility. It's a shame thing in that context. So, what's Boaz saying in verse 5. He said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess. And so Boaz is springing the surprise on this other guy, this nearer kinsman. He's saying it's not just dealing with Naomi and the property, it's also with Ruth. You've got to marry Ruth. Now, the nearer kinsman knew about Naomi, but Naomi's too old to have kids. So when she passes, it's all his. It's all to his family. But because Naomi has a daughter-in-law, Ruth is able to marry and bear children. And so that changes everything. And that's why it says, Buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. So Boaz explained what everybody at the gate knew, that this is a package deal. If someone's going to exercise the right of kinsman redeemer towards the deceased, Emelech. He had to fulfill the duty in regard to both the property and the posterity, that is, the family. So here is the nearer kinsman thinking about this and going, hmm, this is a bit of a problem. And he says in verse 6, And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem the right of my redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. Now, this could be that this guy had grown sons who had already received their inheritance of lands. And the problem of dividing that inheritance among future children 
would cause big problems. It'd be difficult. And it's also quite probable that this guy's already married. And he's probably thinking, my wife is not going to like me if I bring this foreign woman home to my house as a second wife in this house. So it's very awkward. And it's not just a second wife, but a Moabite woman, a younger Moabite woman, a foreigner. And then he says, you redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And Ruth and Naomi start breathing again. (sighs) (laughs) Glorious words in the ears of Ruth and Naomi. A moment before, all seemed lost when the nearer kinsman had said, I will redeem it. But Boaz's surprise plan had an unexpected twist and it worked. Now, what is the application for us when we think about the law? Although we initially think the law can save us through our good works, we realize in the end that it cannot redeem us. Now, why is this? Why can't the law redeem us? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that the strength of sin is the law. The strength of sin is the law. So the more you read the law, the more you study the law and you know the law, guess what? The more you know and understand and realize that the law is not your redeemer, it's your condemner. The law points out your weaknesses, your failings, and your flaws. It's a perfect mirror, but a mirror can never clean you up. It just shows you what needs cleaning up. And that's the purpose of the law, is to show us that we're sinful. The only agent that can cleanse us from our sins is the blood of Jesus. Yep, there is no forgiveness except for the shedding of blood. So it's Jesus' blood that brings forgiveness of sins. It's only when you stop trying to earn your salvation and merit brownie points with God in your Christian walk that you are really free. Once you realize your rules and regulations and self-expectations like working hard, helping others, trying to be a good spouse and parent, and being nice to your dog, cat and chickens, well, that's not going to redeem you. So what do you do? Well, you look to your kinsman redeemer. You look to Jesus, your Goel. And you see that it's not what we're doing that counts, it's what he has done that really matters. And the main application for us today is this. It says, Until the nearer kinsman released his claim on Ruth, she could not belong to Boaz. In the same way, until the law released its claim on us, we could not belong to Jesus. We're going to come back to this and dig into that at the end of the message. For now, we'll go on to verse 7. Now, this was a custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the other close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. So the close relative, or the closer relative, takes off his sandal. Now, the shoe, why the shoe? It's a bit of a debate, but... Some people say that the shoe always refers to possession. So when you have a business deal, you take off the shoe. It's talking about the exchange of goods or money or something. And the idea comes from Joshua 1 verse 3. The Lord said to Joshua, Wherever you put the soles of your feet, that shall be your inheritance. And there's other verses too, but I'll keep going. Now, what about if you turn this around a bit and focus on Jesus? The true kinsman and redeemer, Jesus Christ, who came 
to redeem the nation of Israel. Well, he had his heel barred or made bare as he was nailed to the cross. And he was spat upon on his face when the nation rejected him. So that's basically a rejection of Jesus as their Goel, as their Redeemer. We spit in your face, we take off your shoe, we will not have you rule over us. So Jesus came as the Goel, as the Redeemer, but they refused to accept him. So today, for us as an application here, if you have not acknowledged Jesus as your Redeemer, you too have taken off his shoe, you have spat in his face of the one who died for you and wants to live inside of you. And your rejection of him is the greatest insult that could ever take place. And it's the one sin that will never be forgiven. Because if you don't accept his forgiveness, if you continue to refuse and harden your heart against the Holy Spirit's conviction, then there's no hope for you. Verse 9. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. So, verse 9 there, Boaz said to the elders and all the people. So, it's not just saying, I think, if you can put yourself in that situation, Boaz is joyfully proclaiming, legally sealing the deal, sealing the transaction that he would redeem both the property and the posterity of Elimelech. And best of all, he would get to marry Ruth, the woman he loved. She would become his wife. Now, I want you to notice a difference in attitude between the two men. The closer Goel, or Kinderedema, was only interested in Naomi for the land. There was no concern for the family. In contrast, Boaz was only interested in the land so he could marry Ruth. Ruth was his prize. And you remember some of the parables in the New Testament. A man finds a treasure or a pearl of great price in a field. And what does he do? He goes and buys a field so he can get access to the pearl. And that's what Jesus does with us. We are like the pearl of great price. And Ruth was his prize. We are the prize for Jesus. And we read Hebrews 12 2, that said about Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So we talked about that, that we were on Jesus' mind as he suffered and died. He didn't die on the cross for us just because he had to obey the Father, but because he really wanted to. He was a willing sacrifice. And in verse 10, it says that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. And that's a good description of the idea of preserving the posterity or family line of the deceased because Obed, which is going to be, we'll find it next week, that's the name of Ruth's son. When he grows up, he'll be sitting in the gate. His family line will be continued. And then, Ruth, I have acquired as my wife. Yay. So back in chapter 1, remember that all the way back then? Ruth seemed to be giving up any hope of getting married. Naomi was saying, look, there's no hope for you in Israel. Just go back to Moab. Go back to your gods. Find a husband there. At least you'll have some kind of security. And Ruth says, no, I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to stick with your God. 
I give everything else up. Here, God has rewarded her because Ruth put God first. God has provided for her. He has brought her together in a relationship greater and better than any she could have imagined. And I just want to encourage those who are waiting to get married to trust God in the same way, to be thinking, I'm going to put God first, and whoever God brings to marry me, I'll wait for that person. And I won't be trying to do things on my own strength in my own way, which will lead to pain and heartache. Now, it says, you are witnesses this day. Talking about marriage, the ten elders and the other witnesses, the other people at the gate, they are witnessing this deal. And it's not just a business deal about the land. It's a marriage ceremony. It's an agreement, and it's a public one. So the marriage ceremony is important, and it should be recognized by the civil authorities. Boaz had a love for Ruth that was public, a love that wanted to be publicly witnessed and recognized and registered. Now, sometimes people wonder why a marriage ceremony or a marriage license is important. Can't we just be married before God, they might say. But I believe that there is something severely lacking in a love that doesn't want to proclaim itself, that doesn't want witnesses, and that does not want the bond to be recognized by the civil authorities. That love, to me, falls short of true marital love. It demonstrates a lack of respect and commitment. And then there are those who say, well, use this argument, right? Well, if we were on a desert island, no one else there, and there was no one to marry us, could we still be married before God? Could they have their own little ceremony before God? Yes, you could. But you're not on a deserted island. You are living in a country where there are civil authorities and they have laws. And the Bible commands us to be obedient to the laws of the land. Now the laws of the land say you need to have witnesses and get this document signed and then you'll be legally married. And so that's what God expects us to do. Now, an application for us. Boaz stepped up and said, Since the nearer kinsman cannot redeem, I will. And that is exactly what our greater than Boaz, Jesus, says concerning us. So Jesus alone has the right to redemption. Rules and regulations do not, will not, and cannot redeem us. Jesus alone has the resource for redemption. He purchased us with his precious and life-giving blood that flowed through his veins and onto the ground at Calvary. And Jesus alone has the reason for redemption. And it's by grace, his loving kindness his undeserved, unmerited, unearned favour which brings us into his family. And finally, Jesus alone gives us rest in redemption. Like Boaz, he says, glean not in another man's field. Stay in the field of my redemption and you will find the ultimate satisfaction. So, Jesus alone has the right to redemption because the law cannot redeem us. Jesus alone has the resource for redemption. He's man and God. And it's his blood, his sacrifice, it's the only way to receive forgiveness of sins. And Jesus alone has the reason for redemption. No one else loves us like God does. No one else wants to redeem us. And God gives us rest in our redemption. We abide in him and we experience the ultimate satisfaction. 
And the last section for today, verse 11. And when all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. So this is not just, yeah, we're witnesses. I reckon it's cheering. Yay, we're witnesses. You know, they see these two people in love who are both godly people and they have respected each other and... You know, the women thought Boaz was handsome and the men thought Ruth was beautiful and this was just a romantic, loving occasion. So they're witnesses of this marriage. Now, in Acts 10, 39-43, it says that the law and the prophets are witness of Jesus, but we are witnesses for him as the Holy Spirit enables us. So we are witnesses of what God has done for us. And we're meant to tell other people about that. Let's go back to Ruth chapter 4 verse 6. It says, And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And this is a striking picture of the law. It looks great, but it's completely ineffective as far as being able to help us. The law is perfect, but it can't help us. So I'm going to finish today by digging in to what happens to those who are not redeemed or saved and what happens to those who are redeemed and saved. And look at this, in effect, the consequences of one choice or the other. In other words, what does our future hold? Now, the reason I'm doing this is that I think it's really good we get the big picture and understand what we're being saved from and what we're being saved for. It can only make us more grateful if we understand more about what Jesus has already done for us and the awesome blessings that are yet to come. And as we learned on Friday night, the more we know about God, the more we will love him. And that gives us a greater willingness to forgo the temporary pleasures of this world as we eagerly wait for the specific blessings that are yet to come. So I'm going to start by looking at a great scripture that gives us more insight into relationship that we had with the law before we were saved. So understanding how this closer kinsman fits in, how the law is our closer kinsman, and how we can be free from the law and be married to Christ. So this passage shows us the benefits in this life, how we can bear good fruit that blesses God, others and ourselves, and leads to life. And this is in contrast to being married to the law and bearing bad fruit which brings pain, hurt and sorrow to God, others and ourselves, and leads to death. So the passage is Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. It says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So, Marissa and I, we're married. Now, while we're married, I can't marry another lady and Marissa can't marry another man. But if one of us does pass away, then we're free to marry whoever we want. Obviously, if we're Christians, it's someone who's a Christian. But that's the point of this passage. Now it's going to apply this to the law. So in verse 4, it continues. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. This is the point that Paul is making. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. 
And now you are united with, or married to, the one who was raised from the dead. That's Jesus. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds, good fruit for God. Verse 5. When we are controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, or bad fruit, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. So, how do we get out from this nearer kinsman? How do we get free from him? We die. It's very simple. We die. When Jesus died, we died. And so now, we're free to marry whoever we want. And of course, the next closest kinsman is Jesus. And instead of living the old way, where it's all about trying to keep a certain standard, but having a sinful nature which can't do it, now we are living by the Spirit, when Jesus is living inside of us. And coming back to our application for today, it says, Until the nearer kinsman released his claim on Ruth, she could not belong to Boaz. In the same way, until the law released its claim on us, we could not belong to Jesus. So, how did this happen? So, in summary, the law had claimed to us, but could never redeem us. Rather, it could only condemn us by exposing how rotten and corrupt our sinful nature is. So, what did it take for the law to release its claim on us? Well, I'm going to first look at what the law is, and what the law requires of us, and that is perfection. And that's this verse here. It's James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the law as a whole, but stumbles and offends in one single instance, has become guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not kill. If you do not commit adultery, but do kill, you have become guilty of transgressing the whole law. The Bible is very clear that if we break just one of the commandments, even just once, then we are guilty of breaking the whole law. So this is what brings us under condemnation. This is why the law owns us, so to speak, is because we're guilty. So because everyone has broken at least one of the commandments at least once, that's all it takes. It means we are all guilty. No one is perfect, which means we are all destined for the eternal punishment in the lake of fire, otherwise referred to as the second death. So why eternal punishment? Because sinning against an eternal God has eternal consequences. And if we repent, then the consequences of obedience are also eternal. Everything has eternal consequences. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the benefits we get are eternal. The punishment we get if we don't repent is also eternal. Now, death here is not talking about annihilation, but rather eternal separation from God. There are two types of death. The first is physical death, and the second is spiritual death. Physical death is what we all experience when our hearts stop beating and our spirit and soul leave our body. So, you know, you imagine, you know, boom, diddy, boom, diddy, boom, diddy, boom, beep, you know, flatline, okay? We're dead. Our spirit and soul have left our body. That's physical death. Now, the exception is, if we're believers and Jesus comes back at the rapture, then we don't experience this physical death. 
Now, the Bible calls spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God, the second death. So the second death, or spiritual death, is eternal separation from God. And we're going to read about it in Revelation chapter 20. But before we do, I'm going to go through a basic understanding of the different periods in earth history from God's perspective. So here we go. We have the Old Testament. That's from creation to the resurrection. Then we have the church age, and that's from the resurrection to the rapture. And then the rapture happens, and the New Testament believers who are alive at the time, as well as those who have died, will meet the Lord in the air, receive their resurrection bodies, and will be with him forevermore. Then you have the seven-year tribulation period. That's God's judgment on the earth. Then right after the end of the seven-year tribulation period, we have the sheep and goat judgment, and the, the believers, the sheep, go through to the millennial reign. So those who are alive and survive the tribulation, who are believers, they go into the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ as humans in their natural earthly bodies. While the unbelievers, the goats, are cast into hell or Hades. Then after that, what follows next is the thousand-year millennial rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. So the church rules and reigns with Jesus together with the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints and also the tribulation survivors, the sheep. And so you've got people in glorified bodies and people in natural unglorified bodies, the flesh and blood bodies. Then, what follows at the end of the thousand years is the great white throne judgment, and this is, we'll get into it in a minute, the second resurrection. So, all unbelievers resurrect at this point, are judged, and then sent to the lake of fire. And then after that is eternity, and this is the new heavens and the new earth. So, you've probably heard that God creates a new heavens and new earth. It happens after the great white throne judgment, and this is where there is no more sin and no more death. So. It's a lot to take in, so I've decided to tell you three stories, three different scenarios of what it would be like to go through this. So, I'm going to start as a believer in the church age, and my name is Mr. Grateful. So, Mr. Grateful. I'm so grateful, because my name is Mr. Grateful, for what Jesus has done for me, that I choose to accept his forgiveness. I just love worshipping him, I love reading the Bible, I love fellowshiping with the saints, I love praying to him, I just really enjoy my relationship with God. Oh, what's that noise? Oh, it's a trumpet. Whoa, my body's changed. I've got my new glorified body. I'm in the clouds with Jesus. Oh, this is a rapture. Amazing. Oh, now I'm in heaven. Wow. I'm spending seven years in heaven with Jesus. This is fantastic. Wow. Now that seven years went quick. Now, Jesus, I'm coming back with Jesus on a white horse at the end of the seven years. And Jesus defeats the Antichrist and his enemies. And now Jesus is setting up his kingdom on earth to rule there for a thousand years. But before the thousand years happens, it's really interesting. Me and the other glorifieds, all the other people from the church age, we're watching all the natural people, all the people living in their flesh and blood bodies, they're all gathering into one area and they're all being split into two groups. One group to the left, one group to the right. And it's really interesting. I wonder what the difference is. Ah, so the group on the right is the sheep and the group on the left is called the goats. Oh, I see the pattern now. Those are all believers and those are unbelievers. Ah. Oh, no, they're being judged. 
The unbelievers are all being cast into Hades or hell. This is terrible. But it was their choice. I understand that God is fair. But all the sheep, the people who are believers, who survived the tribulation, they're going into the thousand-year millennial rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. And guess what? At this time, the Old Testament saints resurrect and the tribulation saints resurrect as well. And so now I'm talking to Daniel. I'm talking to Noah. This is fantastic. I'm talking to people who died in the tribulation. I'm talking to people who lived through the tribulation. This is awesome. And we're all living together in the thousand years. And we're serving God. We're ruling and reigning on the earth with God. Then, at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. And, wow, there's this battle, but it's pretty boring, really. Fire comes down from heaven and destroys all these unbelievers. And then, what's really interesting is this throne is set up. And all these unbelievers from all the ages of history, all the parts of history, from the Old Testament, from the Church Age, from the Tribulation period, and those who have died during the thousand-year rule and reign, the unbelievers, they all resurrect, and they all stand before the great white throne. And they're all judged according to what they've done, but none of their names are in the book of life, and therefore they all go to the lake of fire, where they spend eternity. Wow, God's doing an amazing thing now. He's just made a new heavens and new earth. The old ones are completely gone, and then we've got a new heaven and new earth, and we're going to live here forever. Okay, so that's what happens if you're Mr. Grateful in the church age. So, what if you start as an unbeliever? I'm going to call myself Mr. Stubborn here. All right. I don't want to believe in God. I want to live my own life, do things my own way, and enjoy my life. I've got a good job. Oh, hang on. What's this on the news? All these people disappeared. The stock market has crashed. What? I've got no job. I've got nothing. This is terrible. Oh, it's the rapture. My friends told me about that. I've missed it. What do I do now? I better get things right with God. So I'm going to pray to God and ask him for forgiveness right now. Oh, now this leader comes on the scene. Because remember, I'm living in the tribulation now, as a tribulation saint. and. This leader comes on the scene and he has all the answers to all our problems, but I don't like him, I don't trust him. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. Really soon, people start rebelling against him and there's a massive war and, and all these people are dying and there's judgments coming from God. It's just terrible. Now I have to go underground because it's a halfway point and he said, if you don't take the mark, you can't buy or sell. I'm living in a hole in the ground. I'm eating lizards and stuff like that and putting a bag over a tree to try and collect water. I'm just hanging out for that day when Jesus comes back because this is a hard life. It's great for the Jews. God sent them to Petra. But for us other people, us tribulation saints, if we're caught by the Antichrist, we're killed. But I'm just praying that God will come quickly and this will all be over. All these trials and these earthquakes and the heat and the cold, and it's just awful. Finally, Jesus comes back. Yes! Now, he's setting up his kingdom. Now, he's telling me to go over to the right. There's two groups of people. It's a sheep and goat judgment. I'm going over to the right. Oh, I'm one of the sheep. I'm one of the believers. Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. And all the other people on the left, they get sent to Hades. But now I go into the millennial reign. I go into the thousand-year millennial reign. I meet a wife. I get married. 
I have kids. And some of my kids, well, they believe, they choose to believe in Jesus. They choose to accept him as their saviour. But some of them don't. And that's really sad because when they get to 100, they die. But the rest of us, we live right to the end. And so we get to the end and then there's the great white throne judgment and then eternity. Now, what if you started as an unbeliever in the church age? So I'm going to call myself Mr. Love Death now. This is pretty quick and pretty nasty. All right. Mr. Love Death, I don't love God. I refuse to accept his commands. I want to live life my own way. Oh, all the people have disappeared. The rapture's happened. Going through the tribulation, it's okay. I've taken the mark of the beast. I'm being looked after by the Antichrist. I don't care what they call him. I think he's a good guy. He's a lot like me. Oh, what's happening now? Jesus is coming back. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, no. The Antichrist has been defeated. I'm on the wrong team. Oh, no. I'm one of the goats. I'm on the left. Oh, no. I'm going to Hades. Oh, no. Now I'm in torment. I'm staying in torment for a thousand years while everyone else is having a great time in the thousand-year rule around Christ. But now here I am in the bottomless pit in the middle of the earth being tormented. Oh, the thousand years is finished. Satan was released. He was with me for that thousand years. He was tied up. I could watch him. He was chained up down here in the bottomless pit. But then God released him. He deceived all those people up there who didn't believe. But now them and myself were all before the great white throne. Oh, no. Now it's the lake of fire. My name is not in the book of life. I didn't ask God to forgive me of my sins ever. When I was alive, I missed my chance. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in the lake of fire. So I just wanted to do that to help you understand the big picture of what the future holds. So let's read Revelation chapter 20 verses 4 to 15. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or on their hands. They all came to life again, and they all reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there's two tribulation saints. They're massacred by the Antichrist, martyred. Now, the church is already in heaven, and they do tribulation saints. Come to life again, they get their resurrection bodies, and they rule and reign with us. Now, verse 5. This is the first resurrection. Okay, note that, the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended, and that's the second resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Verse 7. When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. That's the bottomless pit. He will go out to deceive the nations. And I'm just going to go down to verse 10. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So at this point, there's only three people in the lake of fire. This is out of darkness. It's not the bottomless bit. This is not Hades or hell. This is the lake of fire. It's out of darkness. 
at the end of the seven years, the Antichrist and the, his prophet, they were cast alive into the lake of fire. They were the first people to go in there. Now, Satan is cast into the lake of fire. So there's now three there. But they're going to be joined by a lot of people very soon. Because in verse 11 it says, And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it, the earth and sky, fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave, that is Hades or hell, gave up their dead, and they were all judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave, which is Hades or hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found and recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So, in summary, the first resurrection, or believer's resurrection, leads to eternal life with God. The second resurrection, or unbeliever's resurrection, leads to the second death. The lake of fire is the second death. So, I don't know if you've heard this before, but basically, I'm just letting you know what's going to happen in the future. So, let's start with the second resurrection. The second resurrection is exclusively for those who, throughout all periods of history, have chosen not to believe. These people all resurrect at the same time, at the very end of the age, at the end of the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, only to face judgment at the great right throne judgment, and they will be cast alive into the lake of fire because their names were not found written in the book of life. And this is what the Bible calls the second death, which is eternal separation from God and eternal torment. Now we come back to the first resurrection which is the resurrection of believers. Now the first resurrection is different to the second resurrection because it's progressive. It means it has several stages or occurs over a period of time. And when did it start? Well, it started when Christ rose from the dead. Christ is the first fruits of a great harvest of resurrected saints. Guess what? 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all believers who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Notice that? It has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Notice that there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. So basically I went through the stages in earth history from God's perspective because this is where we get the stages of the resurrection. So the first stage of the resurrection is, I'll put it on the screen for you, Christ the first fruit. So that's the start of the first resurrection. Then you have the church or New Testament believers all resurrect, both dead and alive, at the rapture when we meet Jesus in the air. The tribulation saints, the third stage, and the Old Testament believers resurrect at the end of the tribulation period. The millennial saints resurrect at the end of the thousand year millennial period. So I just want to clarify something here. 
the resurrection in the scriptures is defined as receiving a new glorified body. The scriptures says very clearly to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if I died right now, before the rapture, I would be in heaven. But I just wouldn't have received my new body yet. Does that make sense? So we're talking about resurrections here. We're talking about getting our new bodies. We're not talking about whether or not we go to heaven when we die. We go to heaven straight away. All the Old Testament saints, they're already in heaven, but they haven't received the new bodies yet. So we'll get ours at the rapture. They'll get theirs at the end of the seven years. So just going to explain quickly the four stages of the first resurrection or the believer's resurrection. So Jesus, the first part, the first stage. Stage one, he rose early on Sunday morning on the third day. And when he rose, his earthly physical body, the one he was born with, the one designed for life on earth, was instantly changed into a spiritual physical body, one designed to live in the heavens in the presence of God. Now the next stage is the resurrection of the church. At the rapture, the dead in Christ, those who died in the church age, will receive their resurrection bodies. And those who are still alive at this time will be caught up or raptured to meet Christ in the air. And their bodies, hopefully us too, if we live that long, will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15.52. And this marks the end of the church age. And this is what us believers look forward to now. Those of us still alive at the time of the rapture will receive their brand new resurrection body instantly and will not experience physical death. And Titus 2.13, all believers should be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's the rapture, looking for this time when we'll be set free from these sinful bodies. Now, stage three, soon after the rapture comes a seven-year tribulation period where many people will believe and most will be killed or martyred for the testimony for Jesus. These believers are called tribulation saints. They and the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the seven-year tribulation period after Christ physically returns to the earth. And a verse for that, Revelation seven thirteen to 14 Then one of the 24 elders asked me, Who are these who are clothed in white? Where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. So, Phase 3 is the Tribulation Saints and the Old Testament Saints, as we learned in Daniel, will be resurrected at the end of the seven-year Tribulation period, when Christ physically returns to the earth, or shortly after. Now, stage 4 is at the end of the thousand years when all the millennial believers, the, the people who went into that period in their physical, fleshly bodies, at the end of that time, they had changed as well. So at the end of the thousand years, all believers will have their resurrection bodies. And we'll all be going into eternity together with our resurrection bodies. Now, have you heard this phrase before? It says, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. So if we're only born once, born physically, we're going to die twice. We're going to die physically, and then we're also going to experience a second death, the lake of fire. But if we're born twice, if we're born physically, and then born again into the kingdom of God, then we will not experience the second death. We'll only experience physical death. That's the first death and not the second death. So, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. So let's come back to the law, just to finish up. Our closest relative who keeps us in bondage until we are saved or redeemed by Christ. I'm just going to go to Galatians. And Galatians says, Is there a conflict 
Then, between God's law and God's promises, absolutely not. If the law could give us life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to explain that we were kept under bondage or as a guardian until Christ came. So again, application. Until the nearer kinsman released his claim on Ruth, she could not belong to Boaz. And in the same way, until the law released its claim on us, we could not belong to Jesus. So how did Jesus do it? We've looked at the hold the law had on us, but now we're going to look at how Jesus freed us. This is really important. How did Jesus redeem us from the law? What did he do to cause the law to revoke its claim on us? Well, it's about the transfer or imputation of righteousness. And it goes both ways. So the first part is, Jesus kept the law perfectly. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus' perfect life is the righteousness that was transferred or imputed to my account when I was saved. So when the Father looks at me, he doesn't see me as I am now. He sees Christ's perfect life. So my righteousness account has Christ's perfect life put into my account. So because I'm in Christ, when the Father looks at me, he sees me as being perfect. He sees me as having already lived a perfect life. Pretty good, eh? That's why there is now no more condemnation for me. But that's only half the story. So that's a transaction where something was imputed to me, and that's God's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, his perfect life given to me. The second thing is that he paid the penalty for our sins. Now this indicates that there was another transaction that took place, and my unrighteousness, my sin, my wickedness, was placed or transferred or imputed to Jesus, his account. Now because my sin was placed on Jesus, he now needs to be punished, even though he did no wrong. He took my place. So think about it, it should have been me on the cross, but he took my place. So never ever complain about things being unfair. This is totally and completely unfair. Because of his love for me and you, the innocent was punished and the guilty set free. Justice was done because the final penalty or sin debt was paid in full. It was unfair, but it was legal. This is God in his love punishing sin without punishing the sinner. It's an amazing thing. The incredible depth of God's mercy are beyond comprehension. So Boaz's kindness and grace towards Ruth when he redeemed her is a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us when he redeemed us. Just like Boaz didn't leave Ruth in the hands of an uncaring Goel or Redeemer and didn't rest until he had accomplished her redemption, which included marrying her, in the same way Jesus didn't leave us in the hands of an uncompromising and harsh Goel, the law, one unwilling and unable to redeem us. Jesus willingly paid the price when he took our sins upon himself and willingly joined himself to us. So I just want to read Psalm 34, 1-8. I thought we could finish with some praise. It says, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation I prayed, and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. I'm just going to finish with that phrase in a verse, just to bring us back to the key thing. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. And because of Christ, what he's done for us, we get to partake in the first resurrection. So, Revelation 25 and 6, this is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended, the second resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Father, thank you for the promise that we have in you to rule and reign with you, to live with you. Lord, our future is secure. Just like Ruth was looking for security, she found it in Boaz. We find our security in you. Lord, we have a wonderful future ahead of us. We're going to experience resurrection. We're going to receive our glorified bodies. We can't wait, Lord, for the future you have for us. Lord, ruling and reigning with you. No fear of death. No fear of the future. Just completely secure in you. Being taken care of by you. Lord, we look forward ultimately to the new heavens and new earth where there was no more sin and no more death. Just perfection. How glorious that will be. Help us to put aside all the temptations and the things on earth that draw us away from you and help us keep our eyes clearly on the future, Lord, where we know that we have a glorious future. We know we're ruling and reigning with you, enjoying life with you and with each other in a perfect world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.